0: Well, it has been said that those who fail to learn from history are destined to repeat it. I wonder how many of you are familiar with that well-known aphorism or saying. This quote is commonly attributed to the 19th century Spanish-American philosopher George Santayana. He is the author of The Life of Reason from 1905, or perhaps that same quote again, those who fail to learn from history are destined to repeat it, might be more commonly associated with the famous British Prime Minister during World War II, Winston Churchill. But in either case, this pithy saying clearly echoes a frequent and profoundly scriptural warning or admonition calling on all of God's people to remember His works and to heed His commands. For example, the Bible famously states in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Well here, the recently delivered children of Israel are commanded to recognize that is how you honor the Sabbath by remembering it, even by resting on the seventh day of the week as a mark of the people's complete devotion to and dependence upon the Lord God of creation. Therefore, the Bible says, remember the Sabbath. Or what of God's timely word to the man Moses and to the people of Israel over in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 12 and 13? Here, of course, we read, Take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Well, in that particular context, the second generation of Jewish believers after the Exodus were commanded by God's law to keep God's law on the forefront of their hearts, allowing the Word of the Lord to be present and welcome at home and to be life-transforming in their hearts. Each generation this is one of the axioms or precepts for this morning that you might want to take note of each generation bears the responsibility of teaching the next generation, the coming generation, about the ways and the works of God. We'll apply with that truth. We'll apply that truth towards the end of today's message. Well, this is not just an Old Testament reality, it's a New Testament reality as well. In fact, the famous Apostle Paul himself underscores the importance of remembering in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. Paul says to Timothy there, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. We could almost hear Paul say, Timothy, whatever you do, don't forget Jesus Christ, whatever you do. He's the sole substance, the sole source of my gospel, of my teaching. Paul says to Timothy, remember the gospel. Or finally, in what are some of the last loving words of our own crucified and risen Savior, we hear Jesus himself tenderly say to the church, this is my body. Do this. It's my body which is given for you. Do this in what? In remembrance of me. Look, the Lord's Supper, which perhaps fittingly, we will share together at the conclusion of today's very service, is itself a feast of faithful remembrance for a family of often forgetful children. Discipleship, like parenting, is fraught with forgetfulness and full of needful reminders. And every parent said, amen, amen. That is why church remember, remembrance is worship. And worship is remembrance. That's a simple statement, but it's oh, oh so true. And as we will see today, it is also essential. Remembrance is essential for our obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, on this very same topic, today's text, which again is Psalm 78, is itself a precious poem about the immense importance of, here's our key theme today, remembrance, remembering. Or perhaps a bit more accurately today, this is a psalm about Israel's long and tragic history of forgetfulness, and therefore their regrettable and frequent disobedience. But it's always interspersed with gracious glimmers of God's covenant love and faithfulness to keep His ancient promises to His precious chosen people. Eugene Peterson is a uh, deceased pastor at this point, but many of you might know his name. He wrote... um, uh, the message translation of the Bible, we don't use that very often, but at times it's helpful. He said in this his translation of Psalm 78 that the Jews were a fickle and faithless bunch who never stayed true to their God. A fickle and faithless bunch who never stayed true to their God. I wonder if he could have been writing that about the church in the 21st century. Fortunately for the Jews, and fortunately for us, Our God, as we sung this morning, is ever faithful, ever faithful to us, even when we are faithless to Him. Well, look, Psalm 78, much like Psalms 105, 106, and 107, and even Psalm 136 is what we might call an historical psalm. If you're looking for a label for this psalm, that's a good one. It is a historical psalm. The second longest psalm in the Bible, right after Psalm 119, of course, Psalm 78 rehearses the perilous history of Israel from Zoan to Zion. but is from their deliverance from Egypt in the book of Exodus, right up to their righteous rule under David there in Jerusalem, under David, God's great servant. <clears throat> this, my friend, is a hymn. Of his, a hymn for history lovers and non history lovers alike, since we all, as sinful human beings, suffer from a severe case of spiritual amnesia that can only be cured by heavenly or divine grace. Faith then is the cure for man's forgetfulness. Faith is the cure. Now, perhaps you'll notice with your Bible open, There at the top, the superscription, or again, I'm teaching you a few things this summer, perhaps, the the heading to Psalm 78. It actually provides two additional insights behind this wonderful psalm that are worth mentioning. The first, of course, is that Psalm 78 is what is known as a mass kill. That's a Hebrew term, a mass kill. There are 13 such mass kill psalms in the Jewish Psalter. Now what does that word mean? This Hebrew word, though shrouded really in some mystery, as many Hebrew musical notations are, is very likely simply a musical term which indicates that Psalm 78 was peculiarly or particularly useful and poignant as an, a teaching psalm in the temple. In other words, the point or the purpose of this poem is that the history which it rehearses Uh, And the hope that it reveals is the lesson that it proves. Let me say that again. The history that it rehearses and the hope that it reveals is the point that it proves. We can't bypass or short circuit the history of Israel because it's so important even for us. Now to this very point. In his own classic commentary on the book of Psalms, that of course is Charles Spurgeon's The Treasury of David. If you love the Psalms as I do, you want to grab a copy of The Treasury of David. Charles Spurgeon writes that Psalm 78 is rightly entitled an instructive psalm, a teaching or an instructive psalm. However, it is no mere recapitulation of important events from Israel's history, but rather it is intended to be viewed as a parable, as a story, setting forth the conduct and experience of believers across all ages. In a sense, we have here both the diagnosis and the prescription. We have the problem and the solution for our rebellion. Now, in other words, Psalm 78 was written for all of God's precious people across all successive generations. And it was written for us, even today, to gain insight as we Think deeply about God's merciful covenant love and enduring faithfulness to keep his own precious and faithful promises despite our frequent and collective failure to obey, our failure to remember the Lord. James Montgomery Boyce so perfectly states that its lesson, Psalm 78's lesson, is that history must not repeat itself. But isn't that so common? That church after church Stumbles into the same problems, forsaking the Lord and fighting amongst themselves. But the point behind Psalm 78 is we need to learn from our past. We need to look in the rearview mirror and learn from our past that we might not repeat those same mistakes. This is what the Apostle Paul is alluding to even in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He writes in 1 Corinthians 10 verses 11 through 13, now, These things happened to them, that is to the Jewish people, as an example. He was speaking there, of course, of Israel's frivolous idolatry and their frequent spiritual adultery there in the wilderness. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man, but God is faithful, isn't he? God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Just imagine not having any information or insights still today from the founding of our great country. Imagine that. Imagine not having any pages in any history books Any monuments in any capitals, any museums to visit. Just imagine not having anything present about our history and how impoverished we would be if that was the case. Imagine the issues leading up to the Continental Congress declaring our colonies independence from British tyranny or the outcome of the Revolutionary War being lost to history or the the life of the great President Abraham Lincoln and the, the consequences of the United States Civil War being utterly forgotten. History, friends, is both hugely significant, not only for us to know from from whence we've come, but also it's hugely transformative in order for us to know where we're going. We need to remember our history. We have a whole book of God's dealing with his people, and we need to be people of that book. Now finally, by way of introduction this morning, understand that Psalm 78, this is the second uh, bit of uh, teaching from that inscription, is peculiarly a psalm of Asaph, and here is a name that some of us uh, perhaps are more familiar with than others. There are 11 psalms of Asaph in the Psalter, and out of the 150 collection, 150 psalms, 11 of them are written or attributed to Asaph. Asaph, who according to 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 39, was the son of Berechiah, uh, was of course a well-known and gifted contemporary of the great King David. He lived at the time of King David. We read, for example, in 1 Chronicles 25, verse 1, that David and the chiefs of the service, that is the service of the temple, also set apart for the service the sons of Asaph and of Haman and of Judathon, who prophesied with lyres and with harps and with Symbols. And so, of importance simply for our purposes today, just know and just remember that Asaph was a highly skilled musician. And evidently, he was a rather articulate poet whom David specially appointed to oversee God's praises in the sanctuary there in Jerusalem. That's a bit about this man. Now, next, let's consider in terms of the actual substance of Psalm 78. I want you to recognize that while this Psalm of Asaph is certainly one of the longest, as I said, it is the second longest of all the Psalms. Its structure and its organization is actually pretty straightforward. For my part in my study this week, I noted a six part outline behind this inspired Hebrew hymn, chronicling Israel's rocky history. And fortunately for some of you, maybe for others of you not so much, you aren't as impressed with my powers of awesome alliteration, We can represent each of these six sections with a a different R word, keeping with our theme, remember. Remember, guys, I spend so much time on these things. Throw me a bone from time to time. Thank you. I appreciate that. Let me just quickly give you a run-through. There's another R for you. A run-through of my own outline for Psalm 78, and then do the length of the text And the time constraints this morning with communion, we're simply going to read our way through the passage, pausing occasionally to make some observations, and culminating with five points of application for your life and for mine. So here are the six movements. If you're a note taker, you want to jot these down, but I think they'll be frequently up on the screen as well. Firstly, we have Asaph's riddle introduced. Asaph's riddle introduced, and that comes from verses 1 through 8. The riddle is the parable. It's really the story of Israel, as we'll take note in a few moments. Secondly, we have Ephraim's refusal implicated. Ephraim's refusal implicated, that we find in verses 9 through 16 rather clearly. From there, we come to Israel's rebellion illustrated. Israel's rebellion illustrated in verses 17 through 20. And that is really intertwined or interspersed with God's own response invoked. And here we have glimmers and glimpses of God's intervention in Exodus and and in the wilderness with the plagues and the provision of manna and quail. From there, in the fifth part, we have Shiloh's rejection indicted or indicated. Verses 56 through 64, we'll have to rush our way through that point, I'm sure. And then finally we have David's reign or restoration illuminated towards the end. I almost preached today's sermon only on those final seven or eight verses because they are so rich. And really they are the culmination and the only hopeful turn in this entire really uh, awful hymn of Israel's forgetfulness. So a riddle, a refusal, a rebellion, a response, a rejection, and a restoration. How's that? for a week of work uh, this week. Notice, firstly with me, Asaph and how he starts the riddle, how he introduces it, this parable, with his own helpful reminder to God's people regarding the importance of steadfastly trusting, remembering, and even obeying the Word of God. Notice verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. A modern preacher or poet might simply say, Folks, listen up. (laughs) Listen up. You know, the work of pastors and parents is the same. It's simply a word of reminding the forgetful. Listen up. Listen up. Verse 2, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, But tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and of His might and the wonders that He has done. Let's pause there just for a moment. Listen, notably Asaph calls his lesson here a mashal in the Hebrew. That is a word that really has enough uh, flexibility to translate either parable or even proverb or as I've chosen to translate it this morning, a riddle. This term implies some hidden wisdom. Or instruction that is being set alongside the facts that are evident. And the facts here are Israel's own history. In order that those who observe this riddle and work it out mentally by not rushing past it but meditating in it. Might discern or discover some spiritual truth or truths. It's good to sit with the history of the Bible. What Asaph is about to rehearse is not breaking news. This is not new information. This is the old, old story. It is what they should be learning from again and again. It is the tried and true and altogether familiar of God's faithfulness despite Israel's failure, despite their forgetfulness. That's the riddle. Verse 5 of our passage, Psalm 78, He established a testimony in Jacob. "...and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. And so that they, notice now four things, should set their hope in God, and not forget the works of their God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation." a generation whose heart was not steadfast whose spirit was not faithful to their god. Asaph wants us to have generational accountability, generational responsibility. Again, forgetfulness in the Bible is tantamount to faithlessness in the Bible. When we forget the Lord, we lead we are led into unfaithfulness before the Lord. Asaph's riddle then resonates with God's commands and reminders throughout all the Old Testament that not only must his people listen to and obey his words, but they must be faithful to pass them on to the next generation. Moms and dads, grandparents and Sunday school teachers, how are you doing at passing on the good news of God's good book to those who follow after you? We find this principle in a bunch of different places. Let me just name three. We won't have time to read them here. Exodus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is a major one, verses 6 through 9 in particular. And we could also have preached this same psalm in a sense from Psalm 145, verses 1 through 4. Again, just to name a few places. And so in many ways, verses 1 through 8 is the preface to this psalm. And it gives us Asaph's riddle, which is here introduced. He begins to rehearse now Israel's shameful and sordid history of sinful spiritual amnesia. Let's not be like Israel in this sense. Well, in the second section, moving on this morning, we need to see how the first example of this people's tragic error is connected to Ephraim's refusal to walk according to God's word And God's counsel. Notice verses 9 through 16 in particular. The scripture says here, the Ephraimites, armed with bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant but refused, there's our R word here in the second point, to walk according to the law. Now admittedly, no commentary is going to be able to show you where this incident happened because it's out of the scripture. Somehow Asaph has insight into something that's not pre-recorded in the Bible. There's a bit of intrigue and and mystery here to this scene with the Ephraimites. But the point is rather simple in this second section, and it's simply to highlight an example of of Ephraim, and I'll tell you who that is in a moment, their stubborn refusal and unfaithfulness to God generally. This is just a, a classic example in a sense. Now, the tribe of Ephraim, for those of us who need, be, need to be reminded of these things, was the largest of the ten northern tribes of Israel. The largest of the ten northern tribes. It is likely then that, the, that Asaph is simply taking the name Ephraim as representative of all of Israel. He's not really just picking on the Ephraimites. He's citing an illustration that pertained to the entire community of Israel, Israel as a whole that is, all of the descendants of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, and how they collectively refused to simply obey and trust the Lord. Look at verse 11. How did they forget? How did they refuse? Verse 11, they forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, He performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan, that is, along the eastern delta region of Egypt. Verse 13, He divided the sea and let them pass through it, and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, He led them with a cloud, and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness, and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Now those of you that love your Old Testament, you're going to have all sorts of wonderful stories flooding back to your mind as you hear Asaph's story. Asaph, in a sense, reaches back several hundred years, multiple generations to the time of the Exodus, and to the time of the wilderness wanderings for God's people under Moses. The implication is rather simple. God's people failed by, re- by refusing to trust in God's protection, in his provision. That is, they forgot his works. They forgot his wonders. What were they? The wonders of the plagues. They're in Egypt that eventually uh, freed Pharaoh's uh, grasp from the people of Israel there in Egypt. They forgot the work of the Passover God's provision of that sacrificial lamb, which prefigured the death of our own Savior, Jesus Christ. They forgot the parting of the Red Sea. How could they forget? How do we forget? They groaned and griped against God in the wilderness of sin. They forgot the power and presence of God who led them in the cloud by day and through the night by the pillar of fire. Asaph cautioned the community of Israel in his day As we are cautioned in our day from simply refusing to follow the Lord. Don't make it any more complicated than it needs to be. Don't refuse to follow the Lord. Now I noticed something in my study this week which is pretty interesting and maybe helpful for those of you that that like to study the scripture. Embedded in the text of Psalm 78 are a few helpful markers that allow us to to track Asaph's train of thought. I want to point out a few of them to you. Verse 9 of Psalm 78, for example, says this, The Ephraimites, armed with bow, turned back on the day of battle. Verse 10 says, They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. What's another way we could render that? They sinned against the Lord. They sinned against the Lord. I think verse 9 then uh, is a a marker of a transition. Look at verse 17. We'll look at this text next. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. Again, we're beginning to see a pattern emerge in this psalm. Now let your eye go down all the way to verse 32 of Psalm 78. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders... They did not believe. Are you picking up the pattern yet? And then finally verse 56. Verse 56. Yet, so connecting what had gone before, yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies. Asaph organizes Israel's history around their rebellion and sinfulness against God. Just to point that out for you in your own personal study to come. Now, thirdly this morning, the third movement is actually abbreviated, it's verses 17 through 20 of Psalm 78, and this is what I've entitled, Israel's Rebellion Illustrated. Israel's Rebellion Illustrated amid God's purposeful patience. Verse 17 again says, yet they still sinned more against Him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God saying can God spread a table in the wilderness he struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed can he also give bread and provide meat for his people and we'll stop the reading there i know what you're tempted to do you're tempted to judge the israelites in your heart aren't you how can they be so stubborn They have God leading them in their very presence, splitting rocks and bringing forth water, providing manna from heaven and quail to feed them. How could they refuse the Lord? What has God done for you lately? Where have you been so quickly to turn from God's faithfulness to you? You see, we share the same human DNA. DNA, of course, meaning depraved nature in Adam. We are afflicted with the same spiritual condition. That is, ingratitude towards God's tender mercies leading to inaction and unbelief in the works and words of God. When you read the Old Testament, you should say, you know what? Somebody's been reading my mail. Somebody has been writing my story. Because we are no different than Israel. We are no different. We needed the same Messiah, That they did. One writer has said. If we forget what it costs God. To redeem us from our sins. Through Jesus' death. We will not long trust him. In life's present trials. Or love him enough to obey him. In times of powerful temptation. The cure is to remember. Which is what this psalm is all about. We need to remember all that God has done for us. It sounds so simple, but it's also transformative. Remember what God has done for you, and it will prepare you, and it will ground you for today's trials and tomorrow's heartache. The Bible is the inspired record of God's saving works for a race of sinful people. Know the book, and you'll be prepared well for life today. Well, we need to move on and take... Note of the fourth section, which is God's righteous response. And this is another very, very interesting and incredible section of this psalm. I want to read largely without comment from verse 21 down to verse 54 or thereabouts. Asaph continues, therefore, and I want just as we're reading this, you to be listening for statements about God's anger. Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. That's another name for Israel, of course. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his saving power. Frankly, who would blame God for being angry with his people? Verse 23, yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them manna to eat, and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate the bread of the angels. How beautiful is that? He sent food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he led uh, out the south wind. He rained meat, that's the form of the quail, on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. God does doesn't sprinkle grace. He showers grace on his people. And they ate and were feel, filled and he gave them what they craved. But before they had had their satisfied, sorry, before they had satisfied their craving while food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose up against them. And he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. Should get our attention, should it not? God responded to Israel's wilderness rebellion with mercy mixed with judgment. See, we want to fashion God as how we want to make God. We want a God who's all goo and grace. A God who's loving and long-suffering, And he is that, but he's also at the same time a God who is holy and will not let sin go unpunished. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. I feel like I keep quoting that passage because it shows up so often. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, slow to anger, and thank God for it. And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of their fathers on the children. And on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Listen the lesson on the one hand is that God is mercifully long suffering. And praise him for it. He is long suffering with us in our forgetfulness. And in our faithfulness, faithlessness. But on the other hand, the lesson here is that God is also holy and righteous in his conduct. And his character, as the Bible testifies elsewhere, will not let sin go unchecked forever. And that is why there was one bloody Friday when God's own baby boy came to earth and he died for us. It was the perfect and only solution for our utter and consistent rebellion. Notice verse 32 as we continue on to see the Lord's response. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. The point is here, there was an entire generation that perished between the Red Sea and the promised land before Zoan and Zion, an entire generation perished in the wilderness Verse 34, when he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought earnestly. They remembered that their God was their rock, the Most High God, their Redeemer. Pause for a moment to note very clearly the they that Asaph is referring to here is the whole community of Israel. Those who perished were not repenting, of course. You have no opportunity to repent once you have perished. So when so many of their countrymen died under God's judgment, others then saw it and responded to it. They repented and sought God earnestly. That is the point. But notice it was short-lived, verse 36. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Can you just... For a moment, pause and picture what you would do if you were God. And you were so patient with a people so undeserving. You had put up with their nonsense time after time after time. What would you do? Isaiah 55 says, for his ways are not our ways. My ways, declares the Lord, are not like your ways. And every single one of us ought to shout hallelujah that they're not. Look what God does and keep in mind what you would have done. I know what I would have done. Verse 38, yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. All these people who have such an issue with God in our culture, they have no idea The kind of character and conduct of the Lord. Constantly throwing their fist in his face. He looks down in love and mercy upon a race of people. He did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often the Bible tells us. And did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh. A wind that passes and comes not again. I want to point out something. Here in the very middle Of this music, in the very heart of this hymn, is something that we must not forget. Despite man's frequent forgetfulness, God Himself is forever faithful. Despite man's constant complaining, God is infinitely compassionate. When man fails, God stands to forgive. He stands to forgive. 2 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9, a verse or verses that you need to keep in mind. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. For the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach Repentance. That's the heart of our high and holy God. In fact, Asaph continues to recount God's amazing grace to all Israel over multiple generations, picking up again in verse 40. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe. When he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan, he turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locust and the fruit of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to the thunderbolts. He let loose on them in his burning, anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the firstfruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. Then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock He led them in safety so that they were not afraid. But the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain by which which his right hand had won. He drove out nations before them. He apportioned for them a possession and settled their tribes of Israel in their tents. Judgment mixed with mercy. Look at and learn from God's faithful dealings with his people. Beginning with their redemption out of slavery in Egypt by terrible plagues, and continuing for a generation, that is 40 years, through patient provision and judgment in the wilderness, and culminating in God's own settling of the people as a nation in Israel in territories and cities that they did not build themselves but were given by God's grace, God never once stopped loving his people. Never once. He is constantly faithful and forgiving despite man's failure and fraught forgetfulness. When will we learn our lesson? When will we learn to lean upon the Lord? Today we've considered the riddle, the refusal, the rebellion, and God's gracious response. Notice fifth, Shiloh's rejection. Shiloh's rejection Indicated, verses 56 to 64. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies. Same song, second verse. But turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers, like father, like son. They twisted like a deceitful bow. They provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath, and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men, and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. This is the pit of the poem. This is the rock bottom of their rebellion. But God will remember and he will restore. Notice Shiloh, of course, is where the ark of God's presence rested. In fact, early on in Israel's history, perhaps 1 Samuel chapter 4 should come to mind, But listen, this penultimate stanza captures the climax of Israel's utter apostasy as they forgot the Lord's commandments, forsook the Lord's ways, in order, by the way, to worship Canaan's lifeless idols. It is not as if they traded up, they traded down in their worship. And therefore, God forsook Shiloh. God forsook Israel. In essence, he rejected the northern tribes temporarily by giving them over to captivity as a consequence of their treachery to God's law, the Torah, the books of Moses. God is patient, but God will ultimately punish unrepentant sin. There is a limit. There is a limit. Don't trifle with the Lord. Now the final and climactic note is our sixth and final point. The final note of this historical review is really the high note of God's mercy found in God's choice of David and his restoration, even his rule. Verse 6, sorry, 65. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep. Now this is Asaph's poetic way of expressing God being stirred to action from a long time of inactivity from a human perspective. God is not drunk, we understand that, but he's so full of his anger It is as if a drunken person has been roused from his sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine. Verse 66 And he put his adversaries to rout, he put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens. Like the earth which he has founded forever, he chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance. With upright heart he shepherded them and guided them with skillful hand. Again, as a pastor, I love the end of this particular poem. It is so beautiful. But the point for us today is, to notice that in response to Israel's covenantal failure, their complete and utter forsaking the Lord, God sets aside Shiloh, but he sets up David. The Lord rejected the tribe of Ephraim, no doubt representing the northern tribes as a whole, taken captive by the Assyrians, but he chose the tribe of Judah. And we know the lion. Of the tribe of Judah, don't we? And specifically, he chose the king David, the youngest of Jesse's sons, the most unlikely of Israel's kings, to be the shepherd and ruler over his precious people. Now, Go back to James Boyce for just a moment. He says, this is a new beginning. That's the point of the end of this poem. It's a new beginning. It's a new opportunity because God is a God of grace, grace and patience. But it is not only, it is new only in the sense that there are always new beginnings with God. If you're here this morning and you need a new beginning, guess what? God is the God of new beginnings for you. Ephraim is rejected, but Judah is here chosen. Shiloh is abandoned, but the ark is brought to Mount Zion. Asaph's point is that it was entirely of grace that God chose Judah and elevated its shepherd boy, King David, to be the great king. There was nothing impressive about David alone. It was all sheer grace. How does God deal with the sinful straying of simple sheep? The answer is he raises up a wise and skillful shepherd who will faithfully guide them home. Now, who does that ultimately remind you of? Our Eyes might see David, but our hearts yearn for a greater David. Our hearts lean towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself is the one prefigured in Psalm 78, 65 to 72. This is not fundamentally about King David. It's fundamentally about God's own son, our Messiah, Jesus Christ, the greater David. John 10, verse 11. I, Jesus says, am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Listen, God in his covenant love and steadfast mercy deals decisively and ultimately with our repeated failings and forgetting. By his own mercy, he raises up a special servant, a choice son who will guide his people heavenward, who will guide his people home with an upright heart that is a life of integrity and a skillful hand. He'll always know what to do. And that is precisely who our Messiah Jesus is. That servant is none other than God's one and only Son, our Savior, King Jesus. Don't tell me you can't find Jesus in the Psalms. He's, they're all about him, ultimately. In closing today, just very, very quickly, let me punch through five application points, and then we'll close with a song and communion. Number one, this is just a repetition of really our first point It is the responsibility both of every Christian and all Christians. Your responsibility and our responsibility to remember the glorious deeds of the Lord and to pass them on to the next generation. It's not just my job. It's our job. I might be called of God to lead the way, but it takes all of us to do the job. It takes us all. How are we doing then at fulfilling this awesome responsibility here at Trinity? How are we doing? Where can you get plugged in in our Awana ministry, in our children's Sunday school ministry, even caring for our children in the nursery, a Sunday school class, a growth group? Where are you right now actively plugged in so that the next generation can know the good work of God? Every single one of you need to be serving somewhere For the glory of Jesus Christ. Don't forget. To remember the Lord. And relay the grace of the Lord to the next generation. That's point number one. Point number two. By way of application. We need personally. To be careful not to refuse to obey the commandments of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Don't think we get off easy because we're members of the new covenant. Now. If you believe in Jesus. You are always his child. I believe, personally, based upon the Scriptures, you can never, ever fall out of His hand. But if you're in His hand, you have new affections, new appetites, new desires. You have a new master. No longer are you your master. You now have Jesus as your master, and you will now want to obey the Lord. If you find yourself consistently, repeatedly, and perseveringly refusing to obey the Lord, guess what? You might not know the Lord. You might not know the Lord. But if you're his child, you must follow the Lord. Don't refuse. There are warnings in the New Testament just as there are warnings in the Old. In the Old. Number three, don't forget to remember, don't refuse to follow. Number three, we need to humbly appreciate and be grateful to the Lord for his abundant provisions through the gospel. Listen, the manna in the wilderness... The quail, the meat between our teeth. God has provided our daily bread in Christ. Has he not? But why do we crumble? Why do we grumble? Why do we complain? Why do we lament rather than give thanks? We need to cultivate a life of robust gratitude and thanksgiving. Don't rebel. And by rebel, I mean grumble. Don't grumble against the Lord. Remember him, don't refuse him, but also don't rebel against God by failing to give thanks to him for his manifold grace and awesome provision. Number four, we need to respond to God's gracious pardon and mercy by casting off the idols of our own secular culture. Israel saw the waters part. They experienced their shoes never wearing out in the wilderness and the provision of manna and quail. But when they got planted in the promised land, they put their eyes on the idols and they chased after those idols. And I see Christians do it all the time. I feel my own heart yearning to worship something that I see rather than by faith worshiping that which I don't see. We must refuse to bow down to our own culture's idols. Verse 58, they provoked God to anger with their high places And they moved him to jealousy with their idols. This is a good verse for two days before the 4th of July. Galatians 5, 1. For freedom, Christ, has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't forsake the riches of eternity for the false promises and empty idols here on earth. Finally, and fifthly, we need to resolutely keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. Keep our eyes on Lord Jesus Christ. Church, are we placing our confidence in Jesus right now? And his soon restoration of all things and his return upon the earth to rule all things to come. I've given you a lot of don'ts. Let me give you one do. Do rest your faith in Jesus Christ alone. Only by falling into the loving arms of Jesus by faith can we escape repeating the folly and the failure of our past. Let's bow in prayer. Oh, Father, what what a hymn, what a hymn, O Lord, so full of conviction and comfort that though we stray and though we forget, yet you meet us with mercy and grace, and you have given the ultimate shepherd to lead your people home in Christ. Oh, Father, we rejoice and we worship him. Lord, I pray as we prepare our hearts for the table of Christ and remember his death and resurrection, I pray that we will confess our sin. If there's anyone here, Lord, that has never accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior, they would come home by repentance and trust in Christ. And, Father, we would all realize that we are to walk with your leadership over our lives. We praise you, Lord for what you've instructed us to do this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.